So we're going to jump right into the scripture today. Not a lot of explanation before it. It's uh, Psalm 96. Uh, as you're turning there, somebody call out the page number it is on the Bibles in the pews. Does somebody have a bulletin in front of them? They can answer that real quick. I forgot to look. Four ninety nine. So if you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles in the chairs in front of you. It's on page four ninety nine in those black Bibles. If you don't have your own Bible, that's our gift to you. Take it with you, read it, um, and let it do its work in you. Uh, we we wholeheartedly affirm uh, the power of God's word and, and long for everybody to have their own copy. So so four ninety nine. I think is what you said, right? Four ninety nine. Uh, Psalm 96, uh, we are starting into an Advent series. It's a very, it's an abbreviated Advent series this year. Um, the, the typically it'd be four to five weeks, depending on, uh, on how the calendar breaks out. We are, we are looking at this in the next three weeks and the focus is, the focus is going to be every week just thinking about joy. And so we've entitled it joy to the world, um, because truly in receiving Christ and the hope of his coming, that is our great joy. And so, so that's going to be the, the, the theme as we approach Christmas and think about Jesus' birth and his return. In fact, let me just say this before I jump in. Advent is a time, a season, not just to remember that he has come, although that's important as a vital piece of the story. Uh, we remember his first advent, his first arrival, his first coming, but we anticipate his second coming, the one in which all things are going to be made new, and he's going to culminate all of his work that he has begun, and, and, and uh, the righteous will be brought home, and, and God's justice will be uh, revealed. And so, so that is a time to look forward to with great joy. And in fact, as we study these psalms, I think that's going to be our greatest focus, and I think you'll see that today. So Psalm 96, beginning in verse 1, we'll read all the way through uh, verse 13. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless His name. Sing, or tell of His salvation from day to day. Declare His glory among the nations, His marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then all the trees of the the forest shall sing for joy. Before the Lord, for He comes. For He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. He comes. In most cases, as we consider the end of things, the end of the world, 
We, we put it in a couple of different perspectives. I, I think we frame it in a couple of different conversations. There's the, the conversation of the conspiracy theorists or those whack jobs that walk on busy city streets wearing sandwich boards that say, repent for the end is near. And if we can encapsulate it in, in, in a conspiracy theory or some, some whack job that's just lost it, then, then it's nothing that needs to concern us. For others, for, for, for others, I think it's most clearly demonstrated in, in pop culture, at least in our movies, by, by the ways we seek to avoid it, that we seek to escape it, or, or do everything we can to overcome it. Like the movie 2012, where the end of the world is coming, and, and, and they have to find a way to, to persevere. Uh, the, the movie um, uh, uh, Independence Day, I just had a, had a 20-year anniversary sequel that kind of didn't do itself justice, but, but they had to save the world, humanity. One of my all-time favorites, don't judge me for this, is Armageddon. I don't know if you remember the movie. Is these, these oil riggers turned astronauts sent to an, ast- uh, 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 an asteroid to drill a hole and drop a bomb and blow up the asteroid. You remember that movie as ludicrous as it is. I have my reasons, don't judge. Or maybe one more recent interstellar starring Matthew McConaughey in which the world is beyond hope. It's not even saving the world. It's the saving of humanity. And I think it becomes extremely clear one of the overarching themes is this fight. I think it becomes extremely clear in the, in the soundtrack of this movie, the poem, Do Not Go Gentle Into That Good Night by Welsh poet Dylan Thomas is spoken. Do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rave at close of day. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Though wise men at their end no dark is right, because their words had forked no lightning, they do not go gentle into that good night. Good men, the last wave by, crying now bright, their frail deeds might have danced in green bay. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Wild men who caught and sang the sun in flight and learned too late they grieved it on its way. Do not go gentle into that good night. Grave men near death who see with blinding sight. Blind eyes could blaze like meteors and be gay. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. And you, my father, there on the sad height. Curse, bless me now with your fierce tears, I pray. Do not go gentle into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. As I thought about this psalm, the stark contrast of this psalm versus the words of this poet and the the message of our culture. See, there's something within us that seeks to avoid, that seeks to escape, that seeks to hide and fight against the end of things. But this psalmist is clear. His coming, the coming of our Lord King is nothing to fear. It is to be celebrated, a reason for worship. In fact, if you look at this psalm in which he is, he is culminating and bringing to this, to this exultant final point, It is a call to worship and worship because ultimately because the Lord comes. Our Lord King is coming. And so we worship. 
But not just any worship. I'm not talking about stoic, still, somber-faced worship. Like, this is, this is losing control kind of worship. This is a willingness to not care what the people around you think kind of worship. This is a arms raised, hands clapping, feet stomping, bodies dancing kind of worship. I won't do that for just anybody. Just saying. The people on the recording, I don't know how many people actually, they're going to be wondering what I did. We'll just let them wonder. I would suggest this week as we open this Advent series that because of the truths of this psalm, because of what the psalmist brings us here, we of all people, brothers and sisters in Christ, believers in and followers of Jesus, we of all people have every reason to be filled with joy. A joy that cannot be contained but can't help but overflow in worship. I'll even go a step further to say that that based on this text and many others like it. If you spend your time this Christmas season only remembering that Jesus came. But not stopping to think that that will only be fulfilled and finalized when he comes again. Not spending this Christmas season in remembering that he has promised he will return. If we spend our time only remembering that he has come and not looking forward with anticipation and expectation, then we miss much of the reason we have to rejoice. In fact, I'd go a step further and just ask a question. Is it possible that the reason that many of us sitting in this room are not filled with this kind of joy, not filled so full of joy that we can't help but sing with the trees and shout with the oceans and the fields? Is the reason, is it possible that the reason that we are not filled with this kind of joy that spills over to the worship of God Is it possible that we're not filled in this way because we are not anticipating the return of our king? I mean, consider the days in which we live. I mean, there's no doubt that every person in this room understands trial and struggle and pain and heartache. If you're not in a storm today, there's a storm coming that you'll find yourself in. It's a a common theme. It's a common denominator of all human experience. We suffer and we struggle and we deal with problems. Some seem greater at times than others. A, A hot topic in the news has been the racism that has raised its ugly head in our culture and many people feeling oppressed and slighted. And then a man's elected and their answer or the reason in part, the reason they say he's elected is because of people who, at least in part, they say, have been overlooked and they feel oppressed. These are two totally different people groups. They feel marginalized and they feel not represented and they, they feel slighted. 
Some of these people look to this next presidency and they fear what it holds. See, and whether you agree with that fear or think it's founded, founded on something real or not doesn't diminish the fact that they feel it. Others fight depression, anxiety, stress that is overwhelming us. Every other day you turn on the news and it's just more violence, more hurt, more sadness, and ever more brokenness. I wish, I pray, but I'm not certain it's true that the people in this room, that the brothers and sisters that know me and I am able to influence, I wish and I pray that this wouldn't be defined, be able to define who we are or how we experience this world. See, my prayer for you is And the reason I want to spend time thinking about the joy that is in Christ is because I think, I think it's intimately tied. I think it's intimately tied to what we know and believe about God. I mean, just consider this. We're we're entering into this time of season that just for a moment... Just for a moment, everything kind of sits still. And, and as we consider that Christ has come, the weight lifts and we're able to talk about the joy of a season. We're able to talk about the celebration that can be had in spite of the circumstances that swirl around us. What if? What if our life was filled with the expectation and the anticipation of the second advent that this psalm proclaims? What if? I want to give you the answer and then I want to explain that answer, at least the way I would answer it based on this text. To know and to wait on the coming Lord King is to know great joy expressed in worship and in witness. See, all throughout this psalm, there are two things being presented. There are two things being demonstrated. One is a set of commands and ways that we are to act and ways that we are to, to, to uh, express ourselves. But man, when you think about what I've just mentioned, all the pain and the hurt and the frustration in the world, I don't know, do we feel like doing that? Can we authentically express it? I'm glad that the commands aren't given. Just do it. See, because behind and beside every command to express ourselves is the reason why. And it's the expression of our coming Lord King. And we see it expressed, we see it over and over, three different times, three different expressions in verses 1 through 6. We see him calling us to sing and describe or, or declare, I'm sorry, to sing and declare and to tell. For the great, great is the Lord, for all the gods of peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord has made the heavens. We see it again in verses 7 through 9 where we're ascribing to the Lord His glory and His greatness. And then again in verses 10 through 13. 
We see him coming. This great and glorious and sovereign God coming to get his people. And to bring justice with him. So I want to look at those two perspectives to explain my answer a little more fully so that you can see with me what I think the psalmist intends us to worship for and intends to motivate our worship with. First, our Lord King who comes brings justice. I'm sorry, our Lord King who comes and brings justice is the foundation of our joy. If we are founding, if we are seeking to build our joy on some false sense of, 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 of safety or security, that fades tomorrow. The news cycle changes and more difficulty comes our way. We lose a job or, or we're, we, we feel threatened or, or something happens and all of a sudden that safety and security is removed from us. This is not the kind of joy that, that the psalmist is speaking of. This is not the, the worship that's, that's motivated by joy that the psalmist is speaking of. He is speaking of something that, that extends beyond circumstances. He's looking at something that's bigger, more safe and secure than circumstances. He's looking at the Lord King who comes. And he tells us in verse 3, he tells us that he is glorious. <clears throat> it's an expression of his perfection, the revelation of his excellence. The presentation of his greatness. Oftentimes this is demonstrated in the scriptures by, the, by, by, by light. It's called the Shekinah uh, by rabbis, uh, ra- Hebrews and, and rabbis from before. That's an extra biblical word, but it's a way that they were able to describe his glory. The shining and, and the expression of his presence. His purity and his holiness. But this... His glory was most fully revealed in Jesus Christ. Who just a couple of weeks ago we studied about and that light shone through him. That glory was revealed in him. And in, 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 in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He is glorious. Verse 4 tells us that he is great and it expresses it in two ways. He says that he is great and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all peoples. This speaks to his worthiness of worship and his worthiness to be feared. He is worthy of our adoration and our devotion. His worth, his value is above all things. His preeminence and his priority, it exceeds every other thing. Gold and silver and the things of this world pale in comparison. And again, we think back to Luke. He is to be feared above all others. This is not something that is... The the psalmist isn't saying this simply because we should be quaking in our boots afraid of him. but, But when we fear God first, we have no reason to fear anything else. When we see him as greatest, as we see him as most valuable, as we see him as over all other things, there is no need to fear anything else if we fear him. Because in him resides greatness. You see, in this, this feeds our worship. John Piper, in a sermon back from 1987, The Curse of Careless Worship, said this, If you don't see the greatness of God, then all the things that money can buy become very exciting. If you can't see the sun, you will be impressed with a streetlight. You think about that. 
a street light. If you never felt thunder and lightning, you'll be impressed with fireworks. If you turn your back on the greatness and the majesty of God, you'll fall in love with a world of shadows and short-lived pleasures. The greatness of God is intrinsic to our joy. Knowing his greatness, not just knowing about it, but intimately knowing his greatness is intrinsic to our joy. He is great and he's greater than all other things. Verse 5 tells us that he is powerful for all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. There's this, this play on words here. Those little G gods, is, it's Elohim for all the gods. Elohim of the people are worthless idols, which is Elohim. We don't see that but in, in English, but in the Hebrew, there's this play on words going on. This, this God is worthless, is nothing. But our God, he is powerful. We see his power that he created the heavens. He created everything. Nothing exists. We just read the the passage earlier that in Christ there's nothing that has been created, that all things that have been created were created through him. His power is undeniable. And even, even as we look around and think about where this all finds its source and where it finds its existence from, is by his power. Verse 10 teaches us that he is sovereign. He reigns over all things. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. This means that he holds all authority, that he is sovereign over all things. And in fact, all other authority is derivative of his authority. That there's no authority that exists that isn't allowed to exist except by his authority. That anyone who expresses authority is in some way either using it by God's permission... or robbing it to use it for their own gain. But all across the pages of Scripture, we see this expressed that God is sovereign and He owns all authority. And everything we do is unto Him. We see this, I think, clearly when Jesus is sitting before Pilate and Pilate says, hey, I could save your life if you'll just answer my questions. And Jesus says, no, 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 you don't understand. You only have authority over me because it's been given to you from above. Christian, follower of Jesus, believer in and truster of Jesus. There is no authority that exists over you that's not allowed from above. He is sovereign. He reigns. So now, I mean, even, even as, the, as Paul and Peter write and they teach the church on how to live in light of the gospel message, in light of the glory as, of, of the gospel, they, they call believers to submit, to submit to all authorities, to submit to every authority established among men. And they don't wait and say, hey, when you get a good master, when you get a good husband, when you get a, a, a good president or a good ruler in your land, then you submit. They say, no, submit as unto God. In fact, in Peter, over and over, as he expresses this in First Peter chapter, the end of First Peter chapter two, and the beginning of First Peter chapter three, he expressly makes the point that we submit regardless of whether it's a harsh master or a good one, whether it's a 
harsh emperor or a good one, whether it's a harsh husband or a good one, we submit as unto God. Because the exercise of authority, whether, whether it is by a good one or not, still is a way for us to submit to the authority of God. He is sovereign. And finally, verse 13, he is coming. See, this, this news, this, this message, this truth about our God, our Lord King who is coming, this sets him apart from all the little G gods, all the, all the supposed gods. This sets him apart. Because all of these other supposed gods say, you must find your way to me. You must make your way to me. But our God has come. And our God has promised to come again. And see, and in this moment, as we sit here today, opening our Advent series, our joy, our joy might be being robbed by the things of this world, but we do not, we do not need to walk around somber. We do not need to walk around with our heads hung low. Because the God who has come is the God who is coming. And he waits now, our Jesus who, who died a sacrificial death, who lived a perfect life, who died a sacrificial death, who rose victoriously, now sits at the right hand of the Father, waiting for his Father to say, go and get them and bring them to be with us forever and ever. You see, when we, when we, when we take this, this is the why, this is the foundation, this is the, this is the ground on which we stand, and it is solid, and it doesn't shake, and it isn't waving, or wavering like the circumstances, the day-to-day, what's coming next, circumstances of the world we live in. It's not founded on, it's not built on what people do for you, it's not built on what you can receive from the world around you, it's not built on, on how you feel, emotions ebb and flow like, <laughs> like, like, Oh, man, like, like the waves in the ocean. I'm up and now I'm down and now, oh, no, this is a terrible day because this thing happened. Today, regardless of the circumstances, is a day that we can sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Because he is coming. We can trust that promise. So this is the why, the foundation of all that is. When he comes... He doesn't just come to gather us. He comes to bring justice with him. And that justice is established by him. And it will either save or condemn. Revelation 19, 11 through 16 tells us that then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the God, the wrath of God the Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You see, this is the hope we have. This is the promise of our God that he is coming to bring justice. And in one sense, yes, there's plenty of reason to be afraid. In one sense, there's plenty of reason to quake in fear. 
Let me remind you of the words of Mary as she sang the Magnificent, as she realized she was going to be carrying the God. The God who was putting on flesh to dwell among us. As she, as she was realizing that truth, she sang a song of celebration. In the midst of it, she says that His mercy is for those who fear Him. So yes, quake in fear for just a moment. But look to the mercy of this God. Look to his mercy and and let that fear move you, motivate you to begin to fall on your face before him, to trust him, to look to his answer, to look to his justice, the justice established in his son, the, 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 the God who put on flesh to dwell among us. Look to our Lord King who is coming. His robe is dipped in blood. It's his own blood. That cleanses our sin. It's his own blood that paid the, 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 the debt of God's wrath. And now as he comes, we no longer have to fear. We can celebrate. So our coming Lord King is the reason we celebrate, is the reason we have joy. It's the foundation of our joy. So how do we express that joy? Our waiting in worship and witness is the expression of joy found in our coming Lord King. I'm going to highlight three words, waiting, worship, and witness. So our whole lives are lived in response to, to this God. Our whole lives, whether, whether we confess Him, whether we trust Him, whether we would know Him, whether we would admit that He exists or is, is a, a falsehood, whether however you appear or, or believe about God, it is a response to God because He is the great, glorious, sovereign maker of all things. There is no escaping living a life in response to Him. When we know God... When we know God to be the things that this psalm tells us that he is, we can't help but be filled with joy. And that joy cannot be contained. And we give worship to the king. Three times the psalmist opens, Oh, sing to the Lord a, a new song. And that's not, stock, that's not talking about a, a, a new song that's like, Oh, I've got to have a new song every week, you know, and, and getting upset with Matt because, Hey, the psalm says a new song, so why don't you bring a new song next week and the week after that and the week after that? You can get upset with him about that if you want, but don't use the Bible for it. I think Matt would say, don't get upset with me about it. You learn a new song and bring it to us. How's that? It's an experience of the new mercies that are every morning. The ongoing, ever-working power of God in your life. So often as we talk about and think about and praise God for the things that he's doing, we think about the things that he's done. And so as we share our testimonies as Christian people, we talk about the day we were saved. Let me encourage you today to think about how you are being saved. What's God's grace doing in your life in this moment? What's God's grace doing in you since last week? How are you experiencing his presence, his provision, his promise This is not something that did happen, that this is something that is happening. And so we sing to him about the new works that we are experiencing in him. And this is not something just for us, this is an expectation for the whole world. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Unfortunately, not all the earth will sing this. All the peoples of the world will not sing it. 
They reject Him and deny Him. Sing to the Lord. Bless His name. We give worship to the King. This is an expression of joy. We declare the, 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 the truths about Him. And, and, and this word declare in verse 3, it's not, a, it's not a word that's used of verbal communication. It is a written record. How many words are spilled on what we think we're missing and what we think we've been slighted and what we think people owe us? How many words are being spilled in lament? And I'm not saying that lament is wrong. But every bit of lament should be founded in the fact that we expect a coming king to fulfill these promises. And the reason we lament is because the coming king isn't worshipped in the lives of all people. Read the Psalms of lament. Yes, it's about the experiences. It's about the pain. But all of that pain reveals how God is being rejected and under-regarded in this world. It finds its source in the fact that we have rebelled and rejected against God, and it finds its answer in the gospel of our coming King. Declare these things. Make a written record of them. We have a written record. Let's keep writing. Let's keep writing of the things that God should be praised for. Let's keep writing of the ways that man deserves God's wrath, but has been given an opportunity for His grace. Let's keep writing of the ways that that Jesus is is fulfilling the promises that God has made to His people. Let's fill our world with words of promise and and provision and, and protection that have been made in Jesus Christ, our Savior. The next time you type a Facebook post or something into your Twitter feed, May it be a written record of the glory of God being revealed in your life. His worthiness of worship. His greatness above all things. His power to create the heavens. May we declare Him worthy of our worship and worthy to be feared. Verses 7 and 8 turn, and, they, and, and instead of, of singing and declaring, it's ascribing. This is essentially saying, yes, yes, I agree. Yes, I give to you your glory and your power. I give to you your majesty and your splendor. It's not so much that God needs our permission to have these things. It's us coming into alignment with, into agreement with that God is these things. He has revealed himself in such a way. He has shown himself to be the great God and creator, the glorious king that is coming. This is just simply us agreeing with him. Yes, you are. How often do we approach his throne in prayer? Why have you let me experience this? Why am I hurting so? Why? Have you not done for me what I expected you to do? Why? Come into agreement with Him. Worship Him. Verse 9, worship the Lord. This is the expression we give. Worship to the King. The word literally is to bow down, to humble ourselves before Him. And we spoke about this last week. Humility is not about us being worms in the dirt. It's not about, about uh, self-deprecation and making ourselves less. It's about recognizing who we are in light of God. 
Recognizing our putting ourselves in the proper place before him. He is above us. He is greater than us. He is more powerful than us. And he is to be worshipped by us. He is not our secret Santa. He is not the way in which we get our problems solved. He is not the, the source for our celebration. Our own celebration of self. He is the center of all things. He is the, the pinnacle of all things. We are the creation of a powerful and glorious and great creator. And he deserves our worship. So how do we express our joy? We give worship to the king. How do we express our joy? We bear witness to the king. I love this in verse uh, 1 through 3. It's or, or the beginning of one, 1 and 2. It's sing to the Lord, sing to the Lord, sing to the Lord, bless his name. And then in verse 2, the audience changes. And no longer are we simply singing to God about all he is and all he does. But he says, now you go and tell everybody else. Go make sure that people hear it. Go speak it with your mouth. Say it out loud just in case you don't know. Just in case you can't see it. The word tell in the Hebrew means speak, tell, say it out loud. Like don't wait for somebody to figure it out on their own. You didn't have to. God ensured that someone came to you and spoke the gospel to you. God ensured that someone was there to teach you about His glory and His goodness and His greatness. Someone was there to teach you about His coming. Someone was there to teach you about the promise of all the good that is to come. So tell others about it. In verse 10 it says, Say to the nations, who do we tell? Everybody. Regardless of nationality, regardless of creed, regardless of color, regardless of value that we see in them based on some socioeconomic uh, uh, set of... of, um, priorities, regardless of anything else, he says, say to the nations, the Lord reigns. Please tell them because they won't know it if they aren't told. The Lord reigns and yes, he's coming. The world is established and it shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity, warn them of his coming, warn them of his judgment, that they might know that there is grace and in Christ there is justice and there is forgiveness of their sins. See, we don't just give worship to the king in our joy. We can't help but bear witness to the king. When we know the God that is, when we know the God that has revealed himself, we cannot help but be a people who live lives of worship that lead others to worship. Sound familiar? See, I I worked really hard to come up with this pithy little statement when we first planted the church about the vision of what we wanted to be about and what we would strive to be our greatest ideal, to be, to, to, to worship the one true God and lead others to worship Him. And little did I know, nearly nine years in, I would be preaching a psalm and, and realizing in the middle of it, this is the heartbeat of the Scripture. To worship in our lives and to tell others about how they might worship with their lives. This is what he calls us to. This is the expression of joy. But that's not the only one. The other one, the final one, is not necessarily as clear, not necessarily painted as as plainly. But we wait expectantly for the king. We wait for him. We look forward to his coming. 
We look towards the time in which he will arrive. And, and, and as much as we expectantly look forward to that day, I can tell you he is expectantly looking forward to that day and he now waits for that moment that he can come and take his bride and take us to be with him forever. And we worship, we witness, and we wait on God. Not first because of who we are, If we start with who we are, then we miss it. We do these things. We are these things because of who He is. We express these things because of who He is and what He has done and how He has made Himself known. When we know Him, we can't help but do these things. The very inclination of our hearts is to do these things. But again, it's not a worship that is still and stoic is a worship that is exuberant, that is jubilant, that is joy-motivated, that is so filled with joy that the joy can't contain itself, and so it must be expressed in our words and in our deeds. In fact, the, 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 the idea here is, is that, that, that because we know who God is, we can't help but do this. And, and this is not a twisting of your arms. This is not, okay, now the preacher preached on this, so i got to do this today. And I'm going to sing with all my heart. And I'm going to go out and tell somebody about Jesus because the preacher made me feel a little guilty. That is not the motive that we are trying to work from. That is not what the psalmist is getting at. He is saying, because you know God, because God is this, because you believe Him, because you trust Him, because you know Him, because you walk with Him. You can't help but do these things. And so the question today as we finish, as we close, as we think about this joy. If you aren't waiting, and you aren't witnessing, and you aren't worshiping, the question isn't what is God not doing. The question isn't how has God failed to be. How have we failed to believe? How have we failed to know? I think C.S. Lewis captures it well in the book in, in his book Mere Christianity. He writes what Satan puts what Satan put into the heads of our remote ancestors was the idea that they could be like gods could set up on their own as if they had created themselves, be their own masters, invent some sort of happiness for themselves outside of God, apart from God. And out of that hopeless attempt has come nearly all that we call human history. Money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empires, slavery. All the things that we are seeing plague us in pop culture, in news media today, all the things that plague us. It's almost prophetic. He goes on the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. So I ask you, you find your life marked by worship? Do you find your life marked by witnessing to God? Do you find your life marked by waiting on his return? If not, I don't want you to just jump into that with a law. I want you to ask yourself another question. Where is the joy that should motivate that? 
Why is the inclination of my heart not satisfaction and celebration? The answer to that question will be found in what you know and believe about God. So let me plead with you and implore you. Get to know God, our great, our glorious, our powerful, our sovereign coming King. Let's pray. Father, I'm grateful that we can know you, that you have made yourself evident in the world. And I'm grateful in my own heart and in my own life. I'm grateful for those that sit in this room whose joy is being fed by knowing you. Stable, confident, never-ending joy. Would you help us to take our eyes off the things that would seek to rob that joy, that would seek to undermine that joy? Would you help us to turn back from those things and look at you and remember your promises and remember who you are and remember what you have done? Would you? Would you remind us and call us, call us to believe Call us to repent, call us to trust, call us to know you and bring us deeper into relationship with you. And I pray, Father, for any in the room today that have never known you and have never trusted you. May you move them with the fear that comes by carrying their own justice. Would you confront them with the sin in their lives, the reality of your wrath, the reality of your power, your sovereignty, your greatness, your glory. That in that quaking fear, God, they would find your mercy. That they might trust you and your provision in Jesus Christ. I pray these things in his name. Amen.